we'd like to thank you, our valued listeners, for your interest and support over the past 18-odd months. What was initially FX Radio has grown exponentially to include not just our podcasts in FX Medicine Podcast Central on iTunes, but we'd like to also introduce the recently launched FX Medicine website. This is our reservoir of resources, research and educational content for complementary medicine. Come and be a part of the community at fxmedicine.com.au. Hi, this is Stacey, the Baby Maker Roberts, and I would love for you to join me in February, our seminar, Going from Unexplained to Pregnant. This seminar will help you assist more of your patients by providing you with practical, clinically proven advice on all aspects of unexplained fertility issues, and I can't wait to share it with you. I look forward to seeing you in February, and to register for this event, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the education tab. See you there. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today, all the way from the United States, for another podcast into fertility and infertility and how we treat conditions that which affect uh, couples wanting to conceive and have a baby, is Stacy Roberts, a former physiotherapist turned herbalist and naturopath. Stacy's been involved in healthcare since 1989 in both conventional and complementary medicine. Stacey is an internationally recognised natural fertility and women's health expert who has assisted people in over 32 countries with improving their overall health and well-being by addressing not just their physical, but also, and importantly, their physiological and psychological health with complementary products and services. Stacey took over Sharkey's Healing Centre in 2004 in Narang, Australia, a clinic that has worked with couples who have created over 6,000 babies while on her program. Most were told it would never happen to them. This program, called the Baby Maker Network Mentoring Program, is designed specifically to help practitioners become expert in helping couples achieve greater pregnancy success with their patients. Today, we'll be talking about polycystic ovarian syndrome, a syndrome of symptoms which may have devastating effects on couples trying to conceive. And welcome, Stacey, once again. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Stacey, polycystic ovarian syndrome or polycystic ovarian disease is different from polycystic ovaries. But first of all, I think we need to get into how common is this condition? Because I, years ago in my nursing, it was something that, you know, once in a while you might hear of somebody who suffered from this. But nowadays it seems to be this all too common occurrence. How common is it? Oh, it's the most recognized or most common uh, endocrine metabolic disorder in women around the world. I mean, we're looking at from the United States where they say 4% of adolescent girls may have um, polycystic ovaries up to 10% of adolescent girls in India. It's becoming uh, quite prevalent, unfortunately, and it's something that... um, as we'll talk about today, um, has a lot, uh, a lot of potential to be addressed and um, in some cases reversed in, in women who are dealing with this. 
And talk to me about normal medical treatment, though, and 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 what are the success of this? Because to me, it seems to be rather a, um, uh, let's say, reductionist approach. Absolutely, it's really basically trying to jumpstart the ovaries or trying to kind of pretend like the ovaries are working. Really, the the medical approach currently today is if someone goes in with polycystic ovaries or has irregular cycles and they determine that it could be polycystic ovaries, um, then they're put on the oral contraceptive pill to create a false period. Basically, it's suppressing the pituitary release of um, LH and increasing sex hormone binding globulin and decreasing androgen secretion. So the person may have a regular cycle for, for years with their own pill, but as soon as they stop taking the pill, uh, everything goes back to where, where it was before in regards to cycles. And, and therefore, when women stop taking the pill later in life, they're usually wanting to conceive. So they um, have uh-huh. percentage of infants have significant issues uh, with fertility. So a, a true Band-Aid approach, as soon as you take off the Band-Aid, the sore hasn't healed. That's correct. Yeah. Well, f- firstly, Stacey, I think I need to delve into what is polycystic ovarian syndrome? You know, is it just one classification of, what was it, five out of eight symptoms? Is that all it is? Really, it's a multifaceted issue. I mean, when you look at it, some person could have um, all the hormonal issues of someone with polycystic ovaries, but no evidence of polycystic ovaries on the ultrasound. Ah. So it used to be that if there were no um, evidence of polycystic ovaries on the ultrasound, they really weren't considered to have polycystic ovaries, but now there's a big question mark over that as well. So it's a very multifaceted um, syndrome, uh, if you will, and we have to look at all different areas. So some people will present with every single potential issue in uh, serum and um, uh, ultrasound and uh, with their cycles, but some people will only have a few of those things. So we've got to, again, look at the kind of the subsets within this and that also polycystic ovaries is really a canary in the coal mine, if you will. Yeah. It's really not the primary issue. This is just letting the woman know that there is a significant underlying issue that's manifesting itself now in polycystic ovaries, which is impacting her fertility, but certainly setting the stage for other chronic uh, degenerative diseases, such as you know, diabetes or high blood pressure and, and things down the road. Indeed, the presentation isn't that classical, uh, you know, metabolic type syndrome um, look of a patient. You know, originally I used to think of they always present with the apple-shaped obesity. But I know somebody who's extremely fit, extremely fit, and she has polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yeah, and I think that's still an issue in the clinic is many times people will come to me who, you know, for example, a female who is fit or lean or even underweight mm. and um, haven't been evaluated for polycystic ovaries because they're not overweight uh, which or they don't have excessive hair growth, um, which is a shame because they're just not getting the full workup because there's still that mentality that they have to be overweight. But gradually that's changing and they're looking more at what their symptoms are presenting with and, and then delving further into um, you know, what their hormones are looking like, what their ovaries are looking like to come up with that that uh, diagnosis. So the prevalence could be increasing simply due to better testing as well, but it certainly is uh, increasing due to poor westernized diets have moved into, you know, pretty, you know, um, many countries around the world these days. Is there a pathognomonic symptom or sign that, that 
you know, tells you, ah, yes, we're dealing with PCOS? Well, the, the, the clearest one and the one that is the easiest one to identify would be using you know, polycystic ovary appearance on an ultrasound. But again, you know, that's kind of slotting someone in into that one category, whereas really looking at, at all aspects of this issue is, is really important. Stacey, you mentioned before that, you know, uh, it was kind of like a Band-Aid approach. As soon as you come off the pill, the symptoms return because it hadn't fixed the underlying issue. How is it medically treated if they once a woman comes off the pill and, say, wants to embark on fertility management? Well, the most common treatment that you'll see patients coming in on or having tried in, in the past is um, comatine, whether, uh, especially if their cycles are anovulatory or very, very irregular. Um, they'll be put on clomid to try to in, induce a regular period so they have the ability to time intercourse. Now, some women with longer cycles are told that they're not ovulating, but they may certainly be ovulating. They're just not ovulating yet. And what I mean by that is many doctors will do a blood test on day 21 of the cycle. Well, if my cycle is 45 days and you do a blood test on day 21, it won't show ovulation. But if you test it 10 days later, it may show that I've ovulated. So uh, we also have to look at you know certain blood tests based on the patient's presentation, not just what you know, generally is done as a protocol. But from a conventional point of view, Clomid is, is the most common, commonly used medication to try to jumpstart their ovaries, so to speak, and get them to um, ovulate regularly. And it, it um, has shown to be effective in, in women with um, ovulation disorders. Um, however, it has some significant side effects and certainly doesn't work uh, with everyone. And it definitely isn't addressing the underlying um, probable causes of polycystic ovaries, which are related to insulin resistance and, and other hormonal type issues. When you see this, you know, massive increase in a cycle length, are you, do you always see a certain thing like, for instance, an increase in follicular stage or do you see a failure of the luteus, the luteal stage? What's going on physiologically with their periods or with their, with their endometrium? More more time than not, it's a um, it's an increase in the the follicular phase um, and a delay of ovulation. Sometimes this can be caused from an interference in their secretion of LH. A lot of uh, some women with polycystic ovaries who have um, elevated um, LH um, have a disruption of the um, hypothalamus pituitary ovarian access. This results um, many times in increased gonadotropin releasing hormone output, and then that can cause this the kind of pulsing of the LH hmm. uh, to happen. So these women actually sometimes will do uh, ovulation tests at home, and they might find that they get positive LH surges for weeks as their LH is surging kind of out of out of rhythm with the way that it should be. So that then induces elevated LH to FSH ratios. And again, these are all clues that um, potentially there's an underlying issue. So when ladies get this pulsatile LH picture, is that indicative of a hyper-proliferative um, mechanism going on in their body? Are these the sort of women that do tend to present with the apple-shaped obesity, the cardiovascular hypertension, that sort of um, I'm not sure that from a statistical point of view we could say that um, as a blanket statement. Um, again, it's, each person is going to be an individual. I might have someone who is um, lean or underweight and has the um, 
Porcupine uh, LH um, issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and or may not. It just really depends, again, on how it's manifesting in their their situation, most likely due to some genetic predisposition and the inflammation caused by many times a, a poor eating plan um, or uh, thyroid function, a thyroid dysfunction can also contribute to it as well as um, a disruption of the HBA axis as well. So it's that's why I said at the beginning, it's very multifaceted because, again, it's not just we present with polycystic ovaries. So this issue, this issue is wrong with you, and then therefore this one herb is going to help you, which is oftentimes how it's presented yeah. uh, when you go to school. You know, you have polycystic ovaries, you take peony, which can work with some people, but I find that um, it works with a small percentage of, of people with polycystic and, ovaries, and there's so much more that, that practitioners can do. And, you know, this is... Aspect. And this is exactly what I like about you because I find the thing that I like about you, Stacey, is that you talk about that person presenting as one individual, what's going on with that person. Mm -hmm. And you individualize, Mm -hmm. you tailor your program to suit what they're going through. So thank you for that. I'll I'll say that right now. But, But I think this is part of the confidence that you will be teaching practitioners in the Baby Maker program. Is that correct? That's correct. What we'll be doing is looking at these overall issues, such as polycystic ovaries, and then breaking them down. And based on, you know, over a decade of strictly dealing with fertility, um, I've been able to identify, you know, these subsets, uh, you know, within polycystic ovaries and with unexplained infertility. And what then the practitioner can look for and go, ah, okay, so this this person's presenting this way. These are the group of herbs that I want to utilize. It's not one herb that is treating one diagnosis. It's a possibility of all these different herbs, but which is going to be the best one for that person. And that's what um, I want to help practitioners identify because when I started doing that with our program, it doubled the amount of pregnancies per practitioner that we were wow. seeing in the clinic. Um, so it's really a, a powerful, there'll be, be supplied with these powerful tools to really help many more people. So without giving away too many of your secrets, <laughs> how does your <laughs> how does your approach differ? You know, because I know that you're hell bent on diet and lifestyle and stress management. What sort of investigations do you do? And then what sort of things do you use? If we could sort of delve into a few of the, let's say the stars. Many times when a woman with polycystic ovaries comes into the clinic, if they have the diagnosis already, um, thankfully they'll have had blood tests done. Uh, which may or may not be exhaustive. So I'll look for the holes in the blood test and then, you know, make sure that their um, LH has adjusted their sex hormone body volume, their, their androgens. We'll look at their thyroid function. Um, and then we'll look at a few other things because, again, we want uh, it's the canary in the coal mine, right? Like we said before, so we want to look at what are some of the underlying issues that are causing this to happen. And polycystic over is um, insulin resistance. So we look at the um, you know, glucose metabolism as well because insulin resistance is a huge issue in regards to polycystic ovaries. And what I, what I want to encourage practitioners out there to understand is please don't be intimidated by someone who comes in with polycystic ovaries because it can seem like this whole, oh my gosh, what do I do? But <clears throat> I find that it is, even though it's the most common disorder, and it entails, and it comes to so many things, it's really one of the most straightforward things to approach and straightforward things to address. And you'll see many, many 
um, stories of viable pregnancies as a result of, of the um, treatment that you're going to um, uh, instill, even if you just work on eating plans. Yeah. Because no matter what substrate polystic ovaries they're presenting with, eating plans is always number one. Yeah. And sugar especially is like, you know, it's like their kryptonite because all these individuals seem to be very conscious, very poor glucose metabolism. And if they're adding any type of sugar in, into their diet, in, in natural or otherwise, it, it, seriously, it's like kryptonite to them. It seems to weaken their system even more. Yeah. It does certainly weaken all of our physiology, but in these uh, women who are presenting with polycystic ovaries, it, it, it seems to have an even more detrimental effect. <laughs> the, the way that I've always envisaged um, polycystic ovarian syndrome is this, you know, there's a circle um, of or a flow-on effect of, of various symptoms um, or various various parts to the puzzle and they each exacerbate one another. And finally, as a practitioner, you've got to say, where do I intervene? And you said the words, it's always got to be diet where you start to intervene mm-hmm. and then everything mm-hmm becomes like a, you know, a positive cascade, if you like. But only when you intervene with diet does does the next sort of um, domino fall. Is it, Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And what I say to my patients is, look, right now you have this diagnosis that's presenting in front of us and it's like a big forest. Mm. And we know one of the trees in this forest is your eating plan and that has a significant impact. So once we address that tree, we're going to be able to see what other trees in that forest are going to be more relevant to us. But if that's not addressed first and if it's not explained to the patient and uh, to to a point where they understand it, not just to a point where they're told they have to do it, but to a point where we're educating them as to why they're doing it, mm. um, then you know none of the treatments or very few of the treatments, I should say, would really benefit them and help them. So it's really, really important that we look at that um, eating plan to um you know, get rid of the excess um, sugar or any added sugar and balance those good fats and good proteins with low glycemic carbohydrates. I mean, there's studies from Harvard that are looking at or that have reported that a low-fat, no-fat diet or women who have two or more diet, no-fat products in their eating plan uh, have increased risk of polycystic ovaries or anovulation disorders. So by bringing that fat into the program, which a woman who might be overweight with, polycystic ovaries yep. may not understand. She might be trying to stay away from fat. Um, so we've got to educate them and help them understand why we're uh, asking them to do this, not just tell them, no, don't do it. So you've got to educate yourself in that as well. Has this got to do with fats being a substrate or cholesterol, at least being a substrate for hormones? Oh, I mean, I'm sure that's part of it um, because it's you know basically where their, you know, their reproductive hormones have come from, you know, including your progesterone. Um, So it's, which is oftentimes lacking or slow to come into play in in women with polycystic ovaries. So the the good fats are so important, but also there's that whole anti-inflammatory aspect of of good fats as well, um, decreasing inflammation in our system, which then allows the communication between cells to happen. You know, the the leptin um, can be secreted to such a point that it can impact the estrogen uh, rhythm in the menstrual cycle versus, you know, if you have insulin resistance, you yep. most likely have leptin resistance. Whether you're severely underweight or overweight, you can still uh, experience amenorrhea. Hmm. So, so many uh, different things can be impacted by, by just addressing those things, getting more fat into the diet and appropriate levels of 
protein. And, and again, low glycemic carbohydrates. It's not about eliminating carbohydrates. It's about eliminating the, um, the wrong carbohydrates. But yeah. Yeah, I think that's a big issue. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. the other the other thing that was going through my mind there was um, insulin signal, signaling uh, at the cellular level mm, with regards absolutely. to you know good fats being more fluid. Absolutely. What about things Definitely. like whey? Whey protein, I think you know, is um, in terms of whey protein, I, I sometimes will recommend that, um, but because of the uh, because of it being derived from dairy. Sometimes I won't go that way, and I'll look for a more uh, vegetarian protein, like pea protein, yep. um, hemp protein. I'll stay away from soy protein um, because most of it is genetically modified. Um, but any type of good protein, and if you, uh, some women who want to lose weight with positive ovaries, we might do like a, a protein shake or a green smoothie in the morning with some type of protein in there as well. So it definitely can have its place. It's in, in the beginning of treating this, maybe, you know, eight, nine, ten years ago, I did do a lot of whey, but now I tend to move away from it due to tending to be acidic and inflammatory just from it being derived by um, derived from cows. However, it doesn't mean I don't ever recommend it. Yeah, but to me it, it seems to fall into, you know, with these um, using the pea proteins and hemp proteins, um, it's sort of... Mm-hmm. To me it sits better with a, a, a Mediterranean-style diet, even though they're not particularly, you know, in the Mediterranean diet, but... Mm-hmm. What about what sure. about managing inflammation? There's, I mean, this is a huge concept, and and to mm-hmm. me, drugs do a very good job at doing at managing acute um, inflammation, but they have these untoward sequelae of blocking one one pathway rather than managing or soothing um, inflamed tissues. How do you differentiate there? What sort of things do you use? So we'd be looking at. Managing inflammation, number one, and always first and foremost in the eating plan, which I, I hope that we, we've made a, a really um, strong argument for that, yeah. for polycystic ovaries especially. And then secondarily, we want to look at things that um, will help them manage inflammation through utilizing the um, herbal formulas, uh, supplementation uh, that can help. So if we, you know, gymnina, for, for example, is a great herb to utilize to help with glucose metabolism. Um, but you also can look at chromium as well as a nutrient, um, you know, to utilize to help manage uh, glucose levels as well. And if you're managing your glucose levels and you're managing your insulin response, then you're managing your inflammation. So it's a matter of um, decreasing that and giving your body what it needs to address the inflammation itself. Whereas medically, I agree, I think anti-inflammatories work very well in the short term, but they can also cause some pro-inflammatory issues uh, in the long term. And they don't address um, why these things are happening. So if you're constantly eating foods that are going to be pro-inflammatory and taking anti-inflammatories, you're really not doing a service to yourself. No. Um, if that makes sense. And and you mentioned soy previously, um, which was I use the I overuse this term I know, but the poster child of phytoestrogens decades ago, which fell out of favour because mm-hmm. so much of it was genetically modified. But there was also other issues, um, particularly with like people who were having massive soy intake, um, and they were you know inhibiting their thyroid, getting thyroid nodules, all sorts yeah. of issues. But with regards to herbs, which are considered phytoestrogens, I think this has been medically bastardized that, you know, they blame it and they just say, oh, therefore it's an estrogen 
which I don't subscribe uh-huh. to. Can you take our listeners through that that saga, please, and what it really is the truth? Sure. I think what we have to understand, and even what practitioners fall into, is we use this word bioestrogen um, synonymous with estrogen, yeah. and it just is not the case. Um, it may bind to estrogen receptors, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this is an estrogen compound. I mean, I had I had a physician um, at one time years ago, and this is um, still when we started on the clinic, so we're talking 15, 20 years ago, where he you know, held up a herbal formula um, on, on the news, um, and it had the Sharky's label, and it said, and he said, there are hormones in this, you know, mix, you know, stay away from this, blah, blah, blah. So there's so much misunderstanding about, you know, phytoestrogen related estrogens, and the bottom line is they're not estrogen. It may have some impact on estrogen output, um, but they um, are, are definitely not estrogen. So yeah. to take black coat. Black cohosh, a lot of times herbs are, uh, because they help to address symptoms of estrogen or low estrogen, like black cohosh helping with hot flushes. For years and years, they believe that black cohosh was a phytoestrogen. One more recent evidence is showing that it really doesn't have impact on um, estrogen levels per se, but um, it actually um, decreases hot flushes uh, from the activity that it does within the brain versus any estrogen-like activity that it has. So. Black cohosh is now even being considered in some oncology centers as a potential treatment for patients who, um, uh, after chemotherapy treatment, yes. may be experiencing hot flushes from the stroke system. Certainly more tests and more studies need to be done uh, to see uh, these long-term effects. Um, but, uh, again, the underlying issue is I wouldn't throw around phytoestrogen and uh, equaling estrogen synonymously. And just a point for our listeners regarding black cohosh, um, there is research, um, one paper using it as a potential alternative to Clomid, but the bigger issue in Uh my mind that I wanted to cover is that um, black cohosh was lambasted in Australia um, because of some liver failure issues, which if people delved further, turned out to be not black cohosh, but it was actually an adulteration issue. So this is a real problem where, where people who may be well-meaning to their patients, but they don't know anything about herbs and they blame a herb because it's on the label. Um, whereas what uh-huh. the issue was, was that it wasn't the herb on the label at all. Uh, black cohosh is a right. herb of great value when used properly. So, Absolutely. And the adulteration issue is, is a huge issue, not just with black cohosh, but other other herbs as well. Skullcap um, was one as well too. Yes. And there's a group in the States, I think, being led by Roy Upton, uh, U-P-T-O-N, who is working on um, very specific parameters that practitioners um, who are purchasing herbs to manufacture into products um, can identify um, and test to undergo to make sure that these products are not the um, adulterated form as well. So thankfully there's people out there that are working hard to help with that. So it's hopefully going to be becoming less of an issue in the future, although it was something that I'll have to be cognizant of. And we talked about before black cohosh um, and and clomid just briefly, but I want to make one point, Andrew, in regards to the administration of black cohosh um, and or clomid. There actually have been some studies to show that, uh, or one study in particular that showed that the use of black cohosh along with clomid together in a uh, cycle where they then administered HCG um, around ovulation 
those two together with time intercourse produced a higher rate of pregnancy um, than for those um, who used Clomid alone. Now, we also see the studies that um, show that black cohosh was more successful than Clomid alone in hoping to support uh, viable pregnancies in women with polycystic ovaries. So I wonder in the back of my mind if it's not the combination between black cohosh and Clomid, but um, this, again, black cohosh itself um, and its ability to support uh, women who have polycystic ovaries. So definitely a great herb to look at and utilizing. Sure. And for our listeners, uh, that paper is Shahin, initials A-Y. The title is Adding the Phytoestrogen Semisifuga Racemose to Clomiphene Induction Cycles with Timed Intercourse in Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome Improves Cycle Outcomes and Pregnancy Rates, a randomized trial. That was published in Gynecology Endocrinology 2014 in July. Um, Stacey, there's so much to go on with and there's so many things that we can talk about. What other heroes can you tell our practitioners about and maybe even some things which may or may not work, one of which I note might be N-acetylcysteine? Absolutely. Um, N-acetylcysteine has been something that really hasn't been shown to have a a great impact with polycystilities, although in some cases it has. So it's one of those where you kind of have to see that patient in front of you, their history and everything is something that that you utilize N-acetylcysteine with. So it's not one of the ones that I would say, you know, knocks it out of the ballpark, mm. if you will. But a couple other ones that um, are common um, herbs that um, I wanted to go over would be chaseberry for some reason. Or it would be chaseberry because in, typically um, when uh, practitioners would, would be wary of utilizing chaseberry because of the um, elevated levels of LH in women with polycystic ovaries now. That being said, you know, not all women have elevated uh, LH levels. But if you look at the use of chaseberry for women with polycystic ovaries, it actually can help with women with polycystic ovaries have elevated prolactin, and certainly it can help with um, supporting ovulation in women who um, have the irregular cycles. So, again, uh, practitioners are worried about utilizing um, chase tree with polycystic ovaries. Um, just make sure because of uh, elevated LH, just tell look at their prolactin levels um, and if they're um, in ovulatory longer cycles than potentially or low progesterone. Um, uh, chase there can be a very, very supportive herb. And of course, peony, the one that everyone learns about in school, is great because it helps to reduce androgen excess, which is, uh, you know, strengthening the large discoveries. It helps to modulate estrogen and prolactin. And there's a, a study um, on a product with combination of licorice and peony, um, which is which is subject to a number of clinical tri- uh, clinical trials, and all those trials show the influence of um, those two herbs together on reduction of androgen. Yeah. So that's something to also keep in mind. But back to supplements, um, nutrients. Um, you, you know, we um, can also look at vitamin D as as supportive for women who's dealing with polycystic ovaries. What's interesting with vitamin D is that, it, you know, it, low vitamin D is associated with obesity and, and autoimmune disease. So it could, in fact, potentially be those issues that are contributing to low vitamin D. So it's not necessarily low vitamin D is causative for those issues. However, there are studies that show that the administering of vitamin D uh, in patients who had low levels of vitamin D um, in um, I believe 
believe it was the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology, I think it was in, mm-hmm. um, showed that um, when vitamin D was administered, uh, there was an improvement in triglycerides and the cycles regulated as well. So there's some great uh-huh. research out there about vitamin D. The question that I give is just, you know, when vitamin D kind of came out from a conventional point of view that it was so beneficial, when you know, people were being put on 10,000, 20,000, 40,000 internationally into vitamin D, which we're finding is not really the best way to handle it. And to just be cautious with the vitamin D amount they administer, anywhere between 2,000 and 4,000 international units. Seems like it, it's a, a good amount to help improve those vitamin D levels and certainly um, supporting and encouraging responsible uh, exposure to the sun like, for short periods of time to um, also uh, encourage vitamin D production. Uh, Dr. Jenny Gunton and her group um, at uh, Westmead Hospital looked at women with, I think it might have been gestational diabetes. So forgive me, this is sort of already pre- already pregnant. Um, mm-hmm. But I understand she was using 5,000 IU of mm-hmm. vitamin D per day. And the reason was because they were finding that around about 40% of them were deficient. Now it wasn't. It was more of a, a rescue attempt um, at vitamin D deficiency mm-hmm. rather than any uh, a treatment um, for something. Mm-hmm. But it certainly sort of that, you know it was just interesting. The dose that she was using was five thousand. Sure. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, um, Michael Hollick points out that many people who are obese might need three to five times the normal dose because obese, uh, the fatty tissue sequesters the vitamin D in the skin and so it can't be utilised. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting point that sure. if they're, maybe if they're lesser weight, then they might not need mm-hmm. as much vitamin D or it's a really interesting conundrum. We haven't got mm-hmm. to the bottom to this. Right. It's interesting to note because you don't know if, then, if they're going to utilise that vitamin D that's because right. they're obese, which again brings us back to the uh, issue of helping them with the obesity and addressing that first Absolutely. Um, before thinking a supplement is going and, to and know, sensible make, sun exposure uh, and and sensible sun exposure yes. as well. <laughs> Absolutely. What about fish oils, Stacey? What's the role and and do you use massive doses or do you mainly sort of work towards diet as the main intake of fishy fatty acids? Well, we have to be careful of the um, you know fish they're eating uh, that patients are eating in their diet simply because the mercury exposure and the the toxins unfortunately there are a lot of larger fish these days. So I do certainly um, support the the addition of small fish uh, like whiting and things into the the diet on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I also recommend fish oil as well, and I uh, usually recommend. Um, a lower dose of um, you know, 2,000 to 3,000 milligrams, but that to me is really not the most important. It's the potency of the EPA and DHA yeah. in the fish oil that um, needs to be um, potent in order for it to be effective. You can buy, you know, and take 6,000 milligrams, but you're um, ending up with, you know, a low level of EPA, DHA, and you're not going to do you much good. So, you know, practitioner brand um, who, uh, who whose um, company utilizes very potent and um, a lot of good standard testing to make sure that there's minimal to no, um, you know, exposure in regards to toxins, metals, et cetera, um, is really, really important. Mm. So, um, and, you know, I think we touched on before that fish oil is great from an anti-inflammatory point of view and a 
with that decreasing inflammation, decreases stress, we have seen fish oil and improved progesterone production be correlated. So potentially um, by decreasing stress on the system, by decreasing inflammation, then the body's allowed to be able to create um, more optimal levels of progesterone. Just to carry on from your point on on purity with fish oils, I think a minimum standard for any country, um, for, for excuse me, a minimum standard for any company um, using mm-hmm. fish oils should should have the GoEd um, standard as a as a minimum requirement for their fish oils, mm-hmm. which I might add exceeds mm-hmm. the purity and freshness um, standards of the Australian government TGA. In us, um, right. Stacey, one more. Very interesting component, and, and it's sort of included included in the B vitamin group, but that's inositol. There's some very interesting research on this, mm. especially regarding diabetes. Talk to me though. Talk, tell our listeners about how you use it with regards to polycystic ovarian syndrome. Sure, um, I love inositol for many reasons, um, but particularly because it also um, helps to improve thyroid function, which um, ah. has been Definitely, in my opinion, a, a big parameter in regards to polycystic ovaries. So we need to look at and make sure that the thyroid is functioning as optimally as possible if we want then, it, then to help stimulate um, estrogen metabolism through the liver and also progesterone production as well. So um, I, I love it for that fact. And then it also has been shown to um, be supportive of women with um, irregular cycles. Uh, it can decrease, again, androgen output and helps restore um, um, body's blood pressure. And some people, again, uh, low, uh, this a lot has to do with dietary stuff as well, mm. lower triglycerides. Um, and there are some studies that show that two grams of the inositol along with folic acid were enough to help improve the situation. And um, it's also been studied in combination with selenium, which um, all that really seems to be a, a great combination for uh, improving thyroid function. So it's it's uh, it's relatively new nutrient, but it's um, really something that in the last five, ten years probably tops has been looked at in regards to its benefits for polycystic ovaries. Yeah, that's only recently for thyroid function. That's very interesting, and and a great whetting of the appetite for practitioners that uh, are interested. To uh, in undertaking the um, the baby maker program, Stacey, mm. I, I want to get on now about treatment goals and and effects and and you know we're dealing with something that not always but often goes hand in hand with excess weight. So how do you go about setting realistic treatment goals for patients and how do you measure treatment effects? Sure. Um, well, a patient will come to see me. Let's say they are obese um, and. You know, one of the, the goals that um, we would have is because we know obesity can decrease um, their fertility uh, and the potential for um, not just become pregnant naturally, but also with, uh, you know, IVF or um, other assisted techniques. So we would look at not just focusing on weight, but again, focusing on the health of the whole person and explaining to them and helping them understand why this is an issue, Right. So we would then set milestones in regards to weight loss and then looking at following that on with um, looking at blood levels of the different hormones that we identified were potentially either out of balance or too low or, or even in some cases too high, uh, such as the androgens. And so, again, we break it down into small steps. 
for these patients so that they can look at it as not an overwhelming, I have to lose 50 kilos in order to become pregnant. Because the fact is if they shift, you know, 5% of their weight, they're going to be increasing their fertility and and be able to become, um, and increase their chances to become pregnant. Now, that being said, I certainly would still like them, you know, to work towards um, a a normal weight as much as possible after pregnancy and maintain a good weight during pregnancy as well because of the propensity to have uh, to develop diabetes and gestational diabetes and those types of things. So it doesn't stop just with pregnancy. So mm. um, it's a, educating the patient of this of um, this long-term treatment or relationship that you're going to be um, developing with them to help them, not just with fertility, but other things in their life that may concern them, like their uh, weight issue. Now, the person who doesn't have a weight issue in their immune with polycystic what I actually trying to do is, is help them with a paradigm shift and that they're because they're they're not happy they have politics over it. They think it's something horrible and bad and they are frustrated. And what I try to do is, is show them that polycystic ovaries in their case is actually again I'll use the term the canary in the coal mine for them. And to be able to know that they have this issue now when they're dealing with Mm. when they're dealing with fertility and can learn how to address it now is a good thing will impact not only their health currently their fertility but also their family's fertility and health in the future so sometimes the goal isn't just a number on a on a blood test result um, um or as we've talked about in other podcasts not only uh pregnancy which is obviously what they're seeing you for but also helping them realize that um this health issue which you know may seem negative, is really uh, your body's way of telling you to, hey, pay attention and um, utilize this information to change the course of your life and the life of your loved one. Brilliantly said. So, so that being the focus, I think, kind of, again, shifts people's you know, view and, and can take some stress off situations and excites them and motivates them and empowers them to, to really do something about this and not just, um, you know, want to take a pill to make it all better. Hear, hear, Stacey. And this, listeners, is why I really respect Stacey because she looks not just at taking pills and, you know, the supplements, but she also looks at the whole aspect of the human patient in front of her. And um, and that's what she'll be training you guys on. Stacey, these patients are at increased risk of several reduced or poor pregnancy outcomes, including gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, and we've covered that in an earlier podcast with you. What about polycystic ovarian syndrome causing increased risk to the baby? Well, you know, studies have been shown that um, it may not necessarily be polycystic ovaries itself, but again, the underlying issue of insulin resistance or poor glucose metabolism. And a... um, study that you brought up in another uh, podcast of ours talking about uh, when we talked about male fertility and um, the uh, genome of the male sperm uh, impact potentially impacting the um, the fetus, its growth, and then the child uh, in later life, mm. certainly the same thing can be, um, can be paralleled here with polycystic ovaries because, you know, we're learning more about methylation pathways and um, you know, DNA methylation can be an issue in regards to polycystic ovaries. So somebody who has a propensity towards insulin resistance, which is you know, a precursor in many polycystic ovaries, could potentially impact the health of that child, that unborn child, and then the health of that child in the future. 
So I don't know that I would say polycystic ovaries specifically would have a negative impact on that, but the underlying issues, right. um, whether it's elevated cortisol, the inflammation, um, elevated glucose, insulin resistance, all those things are setting those parameters for that um, growing fetus and, and young child when they're born. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So you've mentioned before that you know polycystic ovarian syndrome isn't one entity, but it can be many types of, you know, many shades of grey. But, you know, what sort of real results can a woman with PCOS expect to achieve? Can we go through a range here? Can you talk about something like maybe a range of patients that you've treated and, and the results that they've achieved? And I think tied in with that, can you maybe give our listeners some caveats, some danger signals that you want to be on the lookout in these sorts of patients? Sure. Um, one patient comes to mind was really interesting to me, and she was actually early on after taking over for um, Ruth Sharkey. Um, and I was a little bit left behind the ears. I've been dealing with with all sorts of um, issues prior to working with Ruth and then taking over. Um, and you know, like everyone else, I, I you know thought that if someone came into me and uh, they weren't menstruating, that you know within six months you know, they're going to start menstruating and everything's going to be well and good and it'll be, you know, done and dusted and be pregnant. Well, there was this uh, one patient who had polycystic ovaries, lean uh, with polycystic ovaries, and she came in to see me and she had, hadn't had a menstrual cycle since high school. So I was about 16 and she was 28 at the time that she saw me. And, um, you know, I believe in the power of herbs. And, you know, I encourage her to, to you know, continue on the program because, you know, within six months, of course, she's going to be menstruating. Uh, well, six months, Kevin went and there was no men- menstruation. And, um, you know, we didn't, we were convinced there was no ovulation. Um, so she was a bit frustrated and so was I. And she continued on the program just because she was feeling so well. And she started to consider whether she was going to do IVF. And then it would have been maybe two weeks after I saw her in person that she called and, and she was all excited and she was saying, hey, my, you know, my period is coming and uh, I'm getting some spotting, so I think that period's coming. So we were both a bit excited and I said, hey, please send me through your temperature charts because, you know, we always look at temperatures with our fertility patients. And, yep. um, sometimes with polycystic ovaries, you get kind of that, you know, uh, EKG where it's just kind of up and down, up and down, and you never get that thermal shift. Um, so I was excited to see the changes that hopefully were going to be happening um, in that temperature chart. Well, she sent her temperature chart through, and I looked at it, and I called her back, and I said, um, uh, you're not going to be getting your um, period um, because you're pregnant, and this is probably some implantation bleed. And, you know, there was silence on the other end of the phone, <laughs> and certainly, and she went and got uh, tested, and she was pregnant. So I was kind of scratching my head going, well, at least she ovulated one time, right? You know, <laughs> um, with what we're doing in regards to the program. Yeah. She came back to me um, after the first baby was born. Uh, again, had not menstruated whatsoever, still um, um, had amenorrhea, and we assumed it was not ovulating. But we pulled out all of our old stuff and we started looking at those temperature charts. And um, we found that there was actually a pattern that you you oftentimes will see in a woman with polycystic ovaries who's not um, menstruating or not menstruating often. Hmm. And you do, if you look very closely, you'll see a bit of a thermal shift. And um, it's not, it's very subtle and um, it's not one that you would normally see on a you know regular temperature chart. And 
previous to the first pregnancy, um, this couple was having its course like every other day. I was like, you know, gold star for you guys. I'm <laughs> impressed that you could keep that up. Um, but of course, when the first became, that slowed down quite a bit. So we started to look at, all right, well, let's look at every time your temperature dips, um, let's have you time intercourse. So maybe that was every three or four days. And sure enough, within three months, um, she was pregnant again. Um, with her second child, and then her third child um, uh, came naturally as well uh, while on a program. So I guess why I wanted to bring that up is the moral of the story is we oftentimes feel extremely frustrated that the herbs aren't working or our program isn't, you know, quote-unquote working. But we want to um, arm ourselves with more knowledge and keep searching and looking for things that could possibly help steer us and the patient in the right direction to, um, you know, Besides blood tests and, and um, uh, you know, the ultrasounds and things like that, that can help us with um, showing the patient that, indeed, there may not be a pregnancy yet, but let's keep working on these things to try mm. to improve your situation. Absolutely. So, um, to answer, that was a long way of answering your question, but um, some of the parameters that I look for are... Um, you know, not just progress with blood tests, but also things like temperature charts and trying to derive a pattern from things that may at first glance not look like there is a pattern there. But it certainly works for this patient and other patients that I've had with polycystic who um, I was convinced wasn't ovulating, but clearly they were, but they weren't making um, a very uh, health, their progesterone wasn't coming in to create a healthy enough lining to then come away as a, as a period on a regular basis. Yeah. Can I just um, clarify from my mind, are you, talking about sure. a, are you talking about a thermal dip before the raise or are you talking about a, th- a thermal dip afterwards? Thermal shift is what I call it. So, yeah. so it's basically the dip followed by the rise in temperature. That's so, right. So... Um, yeah, and it's usually it doesn't have to be the lowest dip in temperature, but just a dip followed by a sustained rise in temperature for about three or five days. And a lot of times in the in the temperature chart, you'll see a very very clear dip, and then you know uh, it almost go up you know 0.5 or or a, a whole degree in some women. But in some women who um, whose thyroid is a bit sluggish, um, you know whose temperatures are generally a little bit lower, you won't see that thermal shift as clearly. Um, so you really have to take a good look at their temperatures to see if, you know, even for three to five or six days, there's a, a bit of a shift where the temperatures are a little bit higher than others. So um, I can't say that's a regular occurrence in the patients that I see with polycystic ovaries, but I use that example because it's an extreme one. Mm. And uh, someone who isn't menstruated and hasn't menstruated since then in 16 can have three children <laughs> um, by wow. you know, tweaking things. And and she had to follow all the eating and, and supplementation. It wasn't just timing of intercourse. Yeah. You had to follow the, the protocol um, to get her there. But um, you know, you know, I don't want I don't want people to get discouraged. Um, you know, just keep looking and keep researching. And that's what I'm hoping the Baby Maker Network mentoring program will provide um, to practitioners out there. Um, you know, different case studies like this where people can compare notes and say, okay, what may, might I be missing that I could to add to this patient's protocol that might help them? Stacy, would you mind taking our listeners through a few danger signals that uh, practitioners should be on the lookout for? Sure. With, with patients with polycystic ovaries, um, one of the, and I don't know that I call it a danger signal, but definitely something that they should be looking out for is um, and, and also being empathetic about 
is we oftentimes will say, you know, get rid of sugar. And, um, you know, we expect that, well, we don't need a lot of sugar in our diets, but um, so these patients should be able to do that as well. Well, after years of, of, of them having either, you know, high glycemic carbohydrates or starches and things like that in their diet, and there's, you know, potentially yeast overgrowth as a result of that candida, et cetera, that if they get rid of the sugar, they're going to be, it's going to be screaming, you know, the body's going to be screaming out for <laughs> more sugar. Yeah. Um, we can't just necessarily think that it's going to be such an easy thing for them. So we're going to have to work a little bit harder to help them with that if they're struggling with getting rid of sugar because their energy levels are decreasing and, and they're just feeling really yuck as their body as this you know, overgrowth kind of dies off. So that's important. And also um, another two other things. One is sometimes um, if they have uh, eating issues, like emotional eating issues, um, and they have weight issues as a result, um, they may be, it may be a safety and protective mechanism for them to have these types of foods. So you really, again, want to talk to them and listen to them about what their concerns are. Women with polycystic ovaries who have um, persism and uh, acne and male pattern baldness yeah. and these types of things um, can have significant self-image issues. And we need to be cognizant of that to um, nurture these patients through that and help them understand that what they're doing, um, you know, may not completely and totally reverse that, but certainly help to improve that um, if they are consistent. And a lot of times these patients aren't used to being consistent with something over a long period of time. So again, the nurturing aspect is really important. And if you're not having progress that you want, really sitting down and having heart to heart with that patient and, and, um, making sure that they are following the parameters and not being judgmental if they're not, Mm. but instead of finding a way for them to um, be supportive or finding a way to be supportive for them so that they can um, implement the things that you're asking them to do. The other thing that I wanted to mention that I oftentimes find in polycystic ovaries into the state, so um, irks me, is um, sometimes when a woman has polycystic ovaries, um, the fingers pointed at them of, in regards to the fertility issue. Mm. And sometimes it's even to the point where the, um, the male partner is like, well, it's not my problem. You know, she's the issue. Um, there was a time in the clinic where I remember the guy was sitting there and maybe I was just having a bad day, but <laughs> he said that about his, his, his wife. And I, oops, it took all that I had in my, in my power to keep from, reaching across the table and choking him um, <laughs> because she was so defeated and so uh, um, beat up by those types of comments yeah. um, that uh, if they don't, if they're not in a supportive relationship, we can't change that, but mm. we can certainly bring things to people's attention um, to help them hopefully be more empathetic or at least to help them help themselves and to recognize uh, what they can do to work on these self-image issues, self-esteem issues, and self-confidence issues. So um, wow. please be cognizant of, of that when you're working with uh, women with polycystic ovaries. That it's, again, I talked about it being a multifaceted issue, but it's also not just a multifaceted physiological issue, but a multifaceted emotional issue as well, psychological issue for um, many women who are dealing with that. You know, I can see that uh, practitioners that undertake the Baby Maker program aren't just going to be learning about fertility. They're actually going to become better practitioners overall, Stacey. <laughs> I hope so. That's my goal. Yeah. 
Stacey, once again, you know, you've, you've taken us through all of the issues, um, including some of the practical aspects, you know, um, dealing with the herbs and the nutrients that you might use with helping ladies who have polycystic ovarian syndrome and its many presentations. So once again, I'll thank you, Stacey Roberts, for taking us through this uh, particular saga. Kind of pleasure, Andrew. I really appreciate it. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.